Hi, I'm Mackenzie Fagan. Coming to you from Brooklyn, this is 112BK. On the show, we're going to talk with the creators of The B-Side, Negro folklore from Texas State Prisons, what the New York Times called one of the top 10 plays in 2017. Starting this Friday, it's being remounted at Brooklyn's St. Anne's Warehouse. I mean, what is theater except for the invoking of ghosts at its very most primal? And then the man who recorded the source material for the B-Side more than 50 years ago, legendary folklorist Bruce Jackson. As one of the reviewers said, it's, it's a lesson in listening. It, it lets you listen to things in a way you otherwise could not. And I literally have heard things in those recordings I had not heard before. In 1965, Elektra Records released an LP called Negro Folklore from Texas State Prisons. The album featured work songs, blues, spirituals, preachings, and toasts, all recorded by the American folklorist and ethnographer Bruce Jackson. The African-American men whose voices appear on the record were serving time, doing hard labor on prison farms, many of which in a former life were family-owned plantations worked by slaves. This album is the foundation of a play being mounted by the Wooster Group at St. Anne's Warehouse. The B-Side opens on March 1st, and to tell us more, we're joined by director Kate Valk. Welcome to Woman 2 BK. Thank you. And also Eric Berryman, who is the main performer and the one who conceived of the project. Thanks so much for joining us, Eric. Thank you for having us. So maybe we'll start with you. Can you tell us a little bit about this record, how you cross paths with it, and what's on it? Yeah, so I was uh, working on a project um, some years ago, and through the process of an artist, through research, I had was amassing some music and, and things, and I was collecting a lot of work song music, and this was a piece of music, I, or an album I collected, just a part of that research, and I, you know, along with some other recordings by the Lomaxes and things of that nature, and then just kind of had it and, and fell in love with this music while, while working on uh, a separate uh, piece, um, nothing like this. And uh, I went and saw a show uh, that the Wooster Group was doing. I had never seen a show they had done before, and I went and saw a show um, that they did uh, uh, called Early Shaker Spirituals, uh, where they took a record and they brought it to life. And I had a light bulb after I saw the show. And um, I, through some weird, interesting, organic means, run into this woman here <laughs> and elevator pitch her this idea. And she says, we need to get together and, and discuss this. And uh, when, when we said, well, what, what album should we use? I said, well, I, 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 there's one I have in particular that, that really has been you know, stick, you know, staying with me and it's really quite interesting. So this, what's great about this album is that it's not 14 or 15 tracks of just work songs, which is what's interesting about it now and was then when it was released is that it featured a whole slew of other things that uh, Bruce Jackson recorded and, and realized these men also had, uh, were developing, were creating, were keeping alive such things as toasts, which are these uh, urban narrative folk uh, uh, poems, um, uh, rhyming couplet folk poems, um, these interesting uh, uh, spirituals that, that 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 they would you know mix and 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 uh, reconfigure, um, and then also just kind of different musings that they would do with each other, as well as work songs. And then with even within the work song, there are different types of work songs that Bruce records. So not just a bunch of men calling responding to each other, but some of them solo work songs, a song one might sing while they're uh, uh, picking 
picking cotton or, 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 or chopping sugar cane. So we just really fell in love with the, uh, uh, just the album in and of itself and the variety of uh, materials um, and work songs that were on it. And the album was released in 65, and to my ears, it sounds like there's sort of a mashup of more contemporary pieces, uh, like there's one that seems to reference the assassination of Kennedy, mm. um, but also songs that seem to date from slavery. Is mm. that is that accurate? Very accurate, because, you know, for much of this, you know, much of any folk uh, culture or music and art, uh, m- many things aren't written down. So, you know, a guy might be singing a line that's being, been sung since the 1930s, but because he's living in 1964 or 1965, he, the next line he might, you know, make up something or because he forgot what the line that he was supposed to sing after the 30s line was, he creates something that speaks to his time now and suddenly that becomes solidified uh, 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 in, in, in the song. So there's this wonderful, you know, mashup of things, which I think is, you know, inherently in uh, uh, folk music. Uh, Yeah, Yeah, it's this living art form that now you guys have also put your own stamp on. Right. I mean, that's uh, I always learn something when we come into these situations and we usually just get right to work. And the Worcester Group has a long tradition and we've been working together for over 40 years and a lot of our technique or methodology is based on uh, the idea of recreation, reenactment, uh, using technology to uh, channel something from the past. I mean, we never take on a project without investigating the past that a particular piece of literature or a, a particular writer or a particular theater maker, we go into the... Uh, echo chamber and the halls of the past to, to inform what we're doing. But this idea of uh, using the technology, the in-ear receivers, and to the video uh, television screens to impulse off of, it's a way of not interpreting. I mean, it's funny. The piece is called The B-Side, Negro Folklore from Texas State Prisons, a record album interpretation. As the Early Shaker Spirituals full title is a record album interpretation. That a, a record could be the organizing principle for a performance. Uh, there's no theatrical text, but the way this particular album is is curated, there is a story that accrues, especially with um, the uh, supplementary material from Wake Up Dead Man, Hard Labor and Southern Blues, the book that Bruce Jackson, the compendium that came out with the album. And uh, so it's a, we're always asking ourselves, you know, what can theater be? What can it do? This does tell a story, but it tells it in a new way where there's no fiction. We're not pretending to be anybody from the material, but there's the frisson between all of us gathered in the room and uh, Eric and the two other men, Philip Moore, Jasper Magruder, and who they are and what their beings radiate Mm -hmm. and how this material transmits through them. They're the instruments. It's like the survivor and the translator. We're using the present and, and invoking. I mean, what is theater except for the invoking of ghosts at its very most primal. This play opens with 
Eric, you you telling the story about how you and Kate met yeah. and about how you pitched her this show. Yeah. Is that is that true? And and Kate, what was your what were your initial thoughts when this person approached you and was like, I've got an idea for a show? Well, it was more like I have he said, I want to do the same thing that I saw there was something about the form from early Shaker Spirituals, a record album interpretation. I think Eric responded, he saw form, and he saw form that he responded to innately as somebody who had a deep love for a particular tradition. It was the perfect matchup with form and content. He had this content, and we had this form, and it was a perfect meeting. And I mean, Eric, what was it about the form that struck you as the way that you wanted to bring this record to a larger audience? Well, I just really appreciated that for that hour that I saw what I saw, I was asked to pay attention to this specific uh, music. I wasn't told what to think about it, but I was just allowed and brought there to sit and listen to this music. And my, one of my light bulbs was I would love for people to be able to sit with music from my people in this way, a certain type of music from my people in this way. And I don't want to tell you what to think or how to feel about it, but I just want to provide a place to, for you to be able to listen to it in a really kind of pure, uh, unsaturated way, uh, similar to what I experienced in the Shaker album. And as far as the beginning of, of how the show opens and the story I tell, I don't want to say, for those that haven't seen it, exactly how the meeting happened, because I think it's cool to kind of hear it for the first time. But um, for a while, we, we didn't you know, we had various iterations of the beginning and how we begin the show. And I think in all anything, you, you're writing or movies or theater, we're always asking, how do we begin? Mm-hmm. <laughs> how, mm-hmm. how, how, do we be, how do we start this off? Right. That's the initial yeah. covenant you strike with the audience and, is what's the tone do you set? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there were various beginnings that we had, you know, where we just kind of went right into the information as far as this is what we're going to be doing and this is what this album is. And So whenever people asked us, which they always ask us since the inception, how did you guys meet? This seems really bizarre, you know, like, I don't know. So how did you guys meet? And, you know, we'd say, well, who wants to tell it this time? You know, or when people hear about it, they go, that's incredible. And then they start telling it. Or my partner, she's always like, you've got to hear this story. It's the most New York story you've ever heard about how how they meet, (laughs) about how they met. You will, it only in New York does this happen. So we were at a press conference in, in Seoul. And someone asked us, you know, okay, well, well, here we go again. Meet? I got to, in each way, I, I, you know, obviously I probably tell it a little differently as far as, you know, different wordings or nouns or whatever. And so, but unbeknownst to me, she well, was. Re- I heard him start to tell the story. And I think it was because we weren't in New York. We were in Seoul, South Korea. He started to tell the story. And just like the tone was so great, I just grabbed my iPhone and started recording him. And then we transcribed the story like that. It was just great. Mm -hmm. His tone was perfect. Mm -hmm. He was telling it in a specific yet a general enough way that I thought it could appeal to anybody. And and I I just, so we transcribed that and that's the beginning. So that version became my text for how, and she says, I think we should begin like this, you know? And when she told me the idea, I was just like, so happy that I'm 
you guys. <laughs> I just, I just, I was like, oh, I, I love this so much, you know. Or at least I do. I don't know anybody and else, it, but it yeah. is a moment that you talk about this contract that you're striking with the audience. It feels very conversational mm. and intimate, and like you are inviting someone in, mm. uh, which I think does set the tone for the rest of the show. And, and maybe let's just actually talk about what the show is because it's a little bit hard to describe to yeah. someone who hasn't seen it. So, what is the B-side? You know, in its simplest form, and I say essentially what I'm going to do in the show, but I still think some people think that it's still fiction and I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not really doing it. Mm-hmm. Essentially, in its basic form, uh, we take this album, Negro Folklore from Texas State Prisons. Um, I play it on a record player, an actual record player that is hooked up and the feed of the sound is through each of uh, is through my ear, Jasper ear, ears, and Phil's ears, and we hear the record live as it's playing. And it's not karaoke, and it's not a, a sing along. We are trying to let these voices inhabit us in a way to reproduce the album live, in the moment. In Bruce's book, he says there are three ways to best appreciate this kind of music. He says one is to be in the place that they are made. Well, that's very hard for most of us then and now. Mm -hmm. He said the second best way is to see and hear the music on a film. So you can see the actual men doing the work and and, and singing the songs. Uh, uh, And there actually is a film uh, of of such, a, a small film that it, to my knowledge, is the only thing that's ever existed um, that we have as far as footage. Three is to listen to an album of these men doing it. So if you can't see them, you can at least hear the actual guys doing it. Well, in a sense, we're almost wondering if there's a fourth way that he couldn't even think was imaginable, that we still, in a sense, hear the actual men, their cadence, their you know uh, uh, rhythms, but uh, but through a live person that maybe that isn't them, but maybe you know kind of plays around with that. So essentially, that that's what's happening. That we're guiding you through this album. That transport that mm-hmm. happens mm-hmm. when it's you hear the original source, but then you hear a person being taken over by it, but staying with it and honoring it in that way to get the voices as specific as possible. And also we have very, uh, it's very mediated sound wise, mm-hmm. meaning speakers and microphones. And so there's a lot of different, but subtle EQs and effects on, on the voices that uh, will give, try and recreate the texture. Because the, each of the recordings were made, they weren't made in the field, they were made in different rooms in and around the units of the prison farm, wherever Bruce could record. You should ask him more about that. It's very interesting because he didn't have a portable uh, tape recorder, so he had to be near an outlet. Mm-hmm. And each each one is recorded at a different time and place, slightly different congregations of men, so there are um, different textures and different sounds to the recordings. And, so. and you do hear some of the recording. Oh, yeah. I mean, yes. for the most part, it is Eric and the other performers channeling these voices, but you do make decisions. We like, always remind the audience. Right. We always take it back to the source and grow up from there. There's there's a great duet almost where you uh, you duet with the original recording, yeah. the whistling. Yes. Uh, and I'm, I'm curious, actually, if you have a favorite song or a song that is most resonant for you? Sometimes it changes by the week. 
my favorite song. Yeah. Um, consistently, my top two um, is the first track of Side Two, Hammer Ring. I just think those guys just, you know, it's one of those things where, at, at, for myself personally, I will never forget the conditions in which these songs had to come about. But at the same time, I appreciate so deeply their artistry and appreciate their brilliance for coming up with the means to sustain their lives so that the work wouldn't kill them or the boss wouldn't kill them if they weren't working quickly enough. So I do have a, 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 it's a there's an interesting enjoyment that I think one can experience with this music that is not dissimilar to listening to an album of, of, of blues songs where somebody talks about, you know, my, well, my woman shot my brother and this happened, or, you know, I've, I've been locked up for, you know, there's real heartache in a lot of these songs that for blues music, we'll put on a blues record and listen to that. Yeah, you know, right. yeah, it's right. it's tough to say my favorite song is Hammer Ring, man. When but no, so Hammer Ring yeah. definitely is is one that is one of my favorite to both listen to and to uh, inhabit, and also the duet one, uh, uh, Three More Brothers. I mean, it's just a fantastic song, and the man that 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 uh, is the sole man on that song, Joseph Chinaman Johnson. Uh, he was one that Bruce recorded uh, m one of the most extensively he recorded him because uh, Chinaman had a, such a large archive of this music in his brain. Mm -hmm. He had verses upon verses and songs upon songs, uh, not only because he was one, you know, you know, had the ability and the timing, the rhythmic timing to be that good, but unfortunately he had been in prison his, most of his life. So by him being in prison for so long, he had amassed all of this music. Mm -hmm. So in one sense, here's a guy that has this Library of Congress, you know, uh, uh, size uh, anthology, mm -hmm. but the reason that he has it you know, it's a weird thing to think about. So it's something that I think I'm always struggling with, even, you know, when talking about it is uh, how do I not uh, sensationalize or make sure people don't get the wrong idea about it. But I think that you can have that awareness and that enjoyment. Um, I mean, I have to. Otherwise, I don't think I'd make it out of bed every night, you know. Yeah. And I mean, I think, you know, your use of the word sensationalize. It, there's no sensationalism about this piece whatsoever. Mm. It is an objective presentation of the songs and of the voices. And that song that you mentioned, the Three More Brothers, mm. I mean, it's essentially about the convict lease system, yes. you know, where we're talking about like penal slavery, where men are being worked to death. Yes. And I think it would be very easy to do a play that... Um, guided the audience in a bit more of a, a directed way to yes. tell them what to think and to feel. But there's something very beautiful about the way it's presented where it's sort of like all you need yeah. is the song and, and your interpretation. Yeah. Um, it's you and two other actors, yes. Jasper and, and Phil. Phil, yep, yeah, Phil. And you take the lead on most of the songs, but mm. there's one song, um, If You See My Mother, mm. that one of the other actors takes. And I'm curious about why the decision to have another actor take that song and the significance of that song? Yeah, well, It was I, just, no. <laughs> it, he was uh, spiritually the right type. Mm, mm -hmm. And uh, in the cut before, if you see my mother, he does that toast as well, yes. Philip Moore. Yeah. And um, it, it was just right. Mm -hmm. I can't explain. He's um, older than Eric and 
further along in this human life. Mm -hmm. And and the song is about um, if you see my mother after I die. Um, I don't know, just different roles for different times of your life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's it's a really interesting way of us kind of dialoguing with the record and seeing what the record wants to right. be. And there were things that we tried out that we realized the record was telling us we can't do that or it actually doesn't work that way. It's mm-hmm. it, it's mm-hmm. weird, you know. And also we should mention uh, Elizabeth LeCompte, a director of the Worcester Group uh, for many years who designed, uh, did the design for this piece, the production design. Mm. Um, The visuals, uh, if you noticed, are actual iPhone photographs of Eric's apartment in Harlem, where he lived at the time. So we're constantly also changing the scene, but we're with, we're like Eric Berryman is slightly quoted and elevated into, we're following Eric Berryman Mm -hmm. and his journey with this album, this material, this book. And there's also a live camera on stage. So the two other men initially are on the edge facing upstage and the live camera gets their presence. They're both of them appear at one time or another together or separately in the monitor as if they're placed inside Eric's room there, like his mm-hmm. the other people who came over to be part of this channeling, this... Uh, uh, invocation of this material. I, yeah. I didn't. I didn't realize this. We were in Los Angeles uh, a few weeks ago and had a wonderful talk back after one of the shows. And you know, someone asked about the work being done, and he was having a hard time kind of matching up the songs he had just heard with work, like cutting down a tree or things like that. And I said, oh, I realized that maybe some people have a preconceived notion about what a work song is, how it sounds. Um, I had these notions when I first be, be, you know, began. You know, I think a lot of us were kind of, uh, uh, not tainted, but our only maybe influence of a work song was maybe a Disney thing or a very deep voice, baritone, Paul Robeson sounding somebody, you know, working on the railroad, blah, 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 blah. And then when you start listening to, you know, the real music, you know, one notion that is kind of uh, uh, corrected is that a lot of these work song leaders were tenors and they sung actually quite, quite high which a lot of music people understand when I say that immediately, they go, oh, of course, if they're working outside, a tenor voice can cut through the sound of axes chopping, of wind, of birds, you can hear it. A low voice can't carry throughout a whole field and the men won't be able to hear the guys. So I had notions that I had to correct. Yeah, I think that's been our intent all along. Uh, There's so much generalizing of history and experience and oversimplification in that generalizing. And there's so many stories to tell that we, in our experience with this particular collection, are, we're just trying to be as specific as possible. Maybe my final question will be, has anyone come to see the show who served time on a prison farm or who had a family member serve time on a prison farm that you're aware of? Not that I'm aware of. I mean, if they have, I I would love for them to reach out to me. You know, I personally would love to be able to find family members of the men on this album. 
um, and try to contact them and just let them know what we're doing and that someone, you know, just, yeah. Um, but it's very, it's, it's, I mean, it's difficult. It's interesting to think that when uh, people uh, of color and specifically African-Americans in this country are free, we are forgotten and they don't, they don't really choose to uh, take note of us that much. But when we're in bondage, we are incredibly taken care of and incredibly numbered and incredibly not forgotten, you know, not forgotten whatsoever. So it's very interesting to look at these old prison ledgers from the 30s and 40s and 50s and see how meticulously uh, recorded we are then. I mean, you know, from, you know, the tattoos to the size of the foot to to if they serve military time to how long to to so much so that if you, you know, got out, got out and came back, they scratched your old number out and put the new number in that really it became very easy to find a couple of them um, that had a, a, a kind of more interesting names. It's harder to find someone named Johnny Jackson than it is to find someone named Mac Mays, you know, and finding his death certificate in prison in the 70s, you know, and and seeing the signature of the guy. So that be, that was a really eye-opening thing for me. You know, and Bruce also, he said to me, he said he realized years ago that interestingly enough, the the times that we are thought of as human beings and are um, depicted as such is when we are in bondage. Bruce brought this to my attention that he realized that on you know slave, runaway slave pamphlets that then we were accurately described as human beings and not as caricatures. I would personally love if people uh, that either you know were uh, incarcerated could you know could experience this or had family members back then, but also. It's one of those things where outside of the few artists or guys that then became recording artists, Lead Belly, you know, one example, most of these guys did not sing this music when they left prison because it was not something they wanted to remember. Um, it, was, it, was, it was a device used to keep going so that you wouldn't die like the guy next to you did um, while you're working out in the field or on the, you know, uh, uh, on the grounds. So when they left, there was no need to sing the songs. You know, there was no need. So I even wonder if family members would even know that their brother, their uncle, their great uncle, their grandfather, great grandfather was one of these men, that they would even know that what they did to even make it back out. I, I would actually wonder that if, if they would know. I mean, it's amazing that this would have been lost to history probably unless Bruce Jackson had been there. Yeah, people um, like him, yeah. Kate, will you let us know how people can see the show? Oh, sure. Um, it's at uh, the first performance is Friday, March 1st at St. Anne's Warehouse in Dumbo. And you can buy tickets online. And it runs through most of March, is that right? Six shows a week, Tuesday through Sunday. Yeah. Um, most of March. Call in. Uh, we're also on Today Ticks. Um, there's an app Today Ticks. Uh, we're, we're on that. Uh, yeah. Great. Well, um, <laughs> thank you so much for coming on the show. It's it's really a remarkable piece that you guys have put together. Thank and you. And congratulations on, on opening. Thank you. Thank you, Mackenzie.
The play The B-Side wouldn't exist without the work of Bruce Jackson, who in 1964 traveled to Texas when he was 27 in search of convict work songs, because he says he liked the music. He spent two years recording and documenting the songs and the stories surrounding them in what would inspire a lifelong interest in exploring prison culture. To tell us more about this work, we're joined on the phone by Bruce Jackson, James Agee Professor of American Culture at the University of Buffalo. Thanks for joining us, Bruce. Hi, Mackenzie. Glad to be with you. So, Bruce, I'm talking to you from Brooklyn, and I hear that you are originally from Brooklyn as well. Is that right? I am. Um, I was born in Bed-Stuy, lived for a while in Fort Greene, and then went back to Bed-Stuy. Well, you're very close to where we are right now. Did you have any connection with the American South before you decided to go down for this project? Um, When I'd been in the Marines when I was a kid, I'd been stationed in the South for a while, and that is it. Uh, So, you know, and, and if you're in the military, basically you're on the base. You're not in connection with anything. Right. So the, what inspired you then to go on this journey to Texas and Arkansas? Um, I, I was interested in folk music. And in the late 1950s, there was a big folk music boom in American popular culture, and I was part of it. And some of the best material... Uh, or some of the material that everybody knew came from Library of Congress recordings, many of them done by John and Alan Lomax in the South. I wasn't a very good singer, and I wasn't a very good guitar player, so I, I thought I'd go get some new interesting material, and so I started recording. And that's what got me off into it. And, and then as soon as I heard the real thing, I decided it was absurd for me to be a performer, and uh, I... I would do better to try to document what was left of that culture, and so that's what I did. How did you get access? It seems incredible that the Texas State Prison would allow you in to record songs that are about the cruelty of wardens or about how men are being worked to death. You are absolutely right. It was one of the great strokes of luck. But before I tell you that, in the last few years, my wife Diane Christian and I, uh, we did a, a book and film about men waiting to be executed in Texas in 79. We did a, an updating of that. We tried to get into Texas. They wouldn't take our calls. They wouldn't respond to our emails. Uh, University of Texas Press published a book of my prison photographs from Texas and Arkansas. I wanted to revisit the places. They wouldn't take my calls. They wouldn't uh, answer my uh, emails. So I lucked out. Uh, I wrote the director of the Texas prison system, a guy named George Beto, and he was really happy to have someone from Harvard come down uh, to talk. So he said, come down, and um, we got to be friends immediately. And I remember the first day I was there in his office, he picked up the phone, and we discussed which prisons I should go to. And I had a list of four or five. And he said, why do you want those prisons? And I said, because I read that those are the prisons that have the um, most serious criminals, the people who've been in the most times, and they're the roughest prisons. And he said... Those were the roughest prisons 15 years ago. They're not the roughest prisons now. I'll tell you what the roughest prisons are. Wow. What what an ally. 
Oh, it was astonishing, Mackenzie. I mean, I mean, it is probably the single greatest research break of, of my life. It sounded like so, you just maybe wanted somebody to talk to. Exactly. I think you and that's that's where this usually winds up. He wanted somebody to talk to. And we wound up over the years talking a lot, even after he retired. Tell me what it was like for you. I mean, help me envision what it was like the first time that you went and visited Ramsey. You know, you're, you're 27. You haven't spent time in the South uh, off, off a base, off a Marine base. Um, talk to me about what it looked like, what it felt like, what it sounded like. Well, at first it sort of looked like the movies, you know, this big Southern plantation. Uh, and it took me a long time to really understand what was going on, how how it was run, what the power relationships were, you know, who had power over whom, what the place of various kinds of cultural stuff was. So w- over the years, my work expanded from the folklore. I did a lot of, you know, straight criminological stuff because I realized, again, I had that astonishing access so I took to hanging out in the prison dentist's office and talking with the convict assistant there. It turned out he'd been, he was a white guy, a burglar and a safe cracker, a safe cracker and a check forger. We started talking, and he would tell me about his work. So I had my tape recorder with me, and I just put it on the dentist tray and started running it. Uh, and... Every time I'd go down there, I'd spend some time with him, and occasionally I'd interview other people, and I'd ask him about them, and he would tell me people who were good to talk to, people who I should be careful believing, and so a, a, a lot of things came out of it like that. It was just, it was, it, I still look back on it and consider it just an astonishing stroke of luck. So let's, let's talk about the album Negro Folklore from Texas State Prisons, which is the foundation for the Wooster Group's play. You know, it features the voices of many men um, who are incarcerated, uh, and many of them have memorable names like Lewis Bacon and Porkchop Houston. Um, yep. I'm wondering if you, uh, how did you record these individual tracks, and if any of the men um, stick out to you in your, in your memory? Yeah, a lot of them do. They, they're still very vivid to me. Bacon and Porkchop was a real character. Uh, he was from, as I recall, Tyler, Texas. And he worked in the sugarcane mill at Ramsey too. And occasionally he'd come over, he'd be feeding the boilers that they used to extract sugar from the cane. And he'd feed the boilers and he'd come over where I was hanging out with a bunch of other guys. And he'd pick, you know, join or he'd Perform something for a while, and he'd make maybe wisecracks, and then he'd go back to work. Uh, one of the most memorable, when I was in the first prison I went to, as I said before, was Ramsey. While I was on Ramsey, the guy said, hey, Oh, it's too bad you weren't here when Chinaman was here. Chinaman was the best work song leader we ever heard. That's what Eric said as well. Yeah, I said, Well, where was, where is Chinaman? They said, Oh, he's dead. I said, Oh, that's too bad. So a few days later, uh, maybe a week later, I go up to uh, Ellis Prison Farm, which is um, maybe about 18 miles north of, of Huntsville, which is about 75 miles north of Houston. And I say, I tell the warden what I'm doing. He says, oh, you want to talk to Chinaman? I said, Chinaman? I said, where's Chinaman? He said, he's here. He said, I'll, I'll get him. 
And it, it turned out Chinaman was in Ellis. Alive and well. Alive and well. And the warden later said to me, he thought Chinaman was the most dangerous man in that prison. So I, I did a lot of work there, and I did a lot of work with Chinaman over the years. And uh, liked, you know, uh, had a great deal of respect and fondness for him. And he figures in, in a, a couple of the songs in the album. And I just want to close out with your thoughts about the Wooster Group show. I hear that you've seen it 16 times. Is that right? Yeah, and plus rehearsals. Yeah. What do you think uh, of what they're doing? I, I think it's astonishing. When he, This started when Eric, he sent me an email several years ago. He, he was just looking, he'd gotten the album and he was curious about it. And then there were some more emails and phone calls and he and Kate came to visit uh, in Buffalo. Working with them has been astonishing because they're a, a brilliantly creative company. Every, everyone in it contributes. So it, it's, it's, it's always exciting being around creative people when they're, when they're doing it. Um, but what they do with the material is they bring it into the present. The, the, the structure of it is, and it really works. It, it, it's, as one of the reviewers, I think, Ben Brantley in the Times said, it's, it's a lesson in listening. It, it, it lets you listen to things in a way you otherwise could not. And I literally have heard things in those recordings I had not heard before. And you made them? I made them. I made them. I edited them. I, I, I worked in the studio equalizing the album at Electra. So, I, you know, I was there all the way, and I have heard things or understood what I was hearing while working with the Worcesters. It's such a powerful piece, and the source material as well is really remarkable. And I personally am very glad that they're bringing it to a larger audience. So, Bruce Jackson, thank you so much for chatting with us today. Good talking to you. Thanks. Bye-bye. And that's the show for today. As Arthur Miller wrote, nobody can know Brooklyn because Brooklyn is the world. But we'll keep trying. Join us next time for a spirited discussion about cocktail trends and psychic intuition. Woman to BK is hosted by me, Mackenzie Fagan. It is series produced by Ross Tuttle, also produced by Fred Brown, Shereen Bargi, Isabel Alcantara, Naeem Van, and Emily Bogosian. It is recorded in studio by Clinton Filson Jr., Eric Hogseg, and Antonio M. Rosario. It is post-produced by Alexander Pointzolo, edited by Mira Al-Rahim, and executive produced by Jonathan Leaf, Sasha Mathias, and Aziz Aisham. 